Why Should We Celebrate the Biblical Festival Days? by Pastor Reed Benson. Everyone loves a celebration. Marking significant life events adds value and flavor to otherwise dull and colorless days that pass one after the next. Few indeed are the curmudgeons who do not have days that they celebrate for one reason or another. Many married couples remember their wedding anniversary, or perhaps the day they met. Countries generally celebrate events of significance in their national life. For Americans, we observe the signing of the Declaration of Independence as a time of fireworks, and Frenchmen mark the storming of the Bastille. Englishmen recall the saving of their parliament and king on Guy Fawkes Day, lighting bonfires in remembrance. Similarly, every religious faith has holy days that they honor and observe with various rites that rekindle the memory of a sacred event or value. Muslims have a sacred month called Ramadan, in which they fast in the daylight hours, commemorating when they think Muhammad received the Koran. Hindus celebrate Diwali, a festival of lights that is supposed to keep out the darkness. And of course, Christians celebrate our own sacred days derived from the Bible. Days like December 25th, when Jesus was born, and Lent, a 40-day period of personal reflection. Oops, these are not really correct. It turns out that Jesus was not born on December 25th, and the Bible mentions literally nothing about Lent. As well-intentioned as many people may be in trying to honor Christ's birth, there is no biblical evidence that Jesus was born anywhere near December 25th. Rather, all the evidence points to an autumnal birth for Jesus near the end of September on the Gregorian calendar, a feast described in the Old Testament and usually called the Festival of Tabernacles. And while personal reflection in the heart of a Christian is always good, Lent is not a biblical celebration, not mentioned even once in Scripture. The unfortunate reality is that many of the holy days that Christianity celebrates are riddled with pagan baggage and errors in timing. Consider Christmas, the premier holiday of Christianity. Not only is December 25th the wrong date, but even a pious believer who wants to focus on the birth of Jesus will have a hard time doing so. The Christmas tree, condemned in Scripture of Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 5, Santa Claus, an amalgam of pagan personalities, intense shopping, and usually a load of debt, and a host of trivial heathen accoutrements like mistletoe, yule logs, reindeer, elves, and so forth, totally overwhelm the sincere believer. The one that only wants to remember the birth of our Savior. Celebrating Christmas on December 25th and avoiding all that is wrong about the holiday is nigh impossible. Why not consider returning to Scripture and celebrating the festivals described in the Bible? Which ones are though, you may say? Well, if you're not familiar with them, let's fix that problem. The Biblical Festivals The single most complete passage that instructs Bible believers as to when and how they celebrate God's holy days is Leviticus chapter 23. It's too long to quote all 44 verses here, so please consider this summary. Verse 5 mentions the first festival, Passover. 
This was a day well known to the Hebrews who left Egypt under Moses. And you can read all about the events that occurred on that day in Exodus 12, and how the Israelites were commanded to remember it. It always falls on the 14th day of the first biblical month. The second festival, seven days in length, follows immediately after Passover. Leviticus chapter 23 verses 6 through 14 addresses this feast of unleavened bread. These two feasts fall in the first month of the year, Abib, which is in the early spring. The third feast is sometimes called the Feast of Firstfruits, Weeks, or even Pentecost, because of the unique manner of calculating when it falls. It is only one day in length and falls 50 days after the Sabbath day in the middle of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. This always places the Feast of Pentecost on the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday. In late spring, when the first crops are generally coming ripe. The Feast of Weeks is described in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 22. The fourth feast, the Feast of Trumpets, takes us to early autumn, the first day of the seventh month, in verses 24 and 25, which tells us what we need to know about this one-day celebration that anticipates the second coming of Jesus Christ. Next comes the fifth feast, perhaps the most sacred and sobering day of the biblical calendar, the Day of Atonement. It lights upon the tenth day of the seventh month and is described in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 to 31. It also is only one day in length, but it is a most special day that features unique themes and activities, some of which are described in detail in Leviticus chapter 16, which profiles the scapegoat. Last, comes the eighth day feast of tabernacles, which has two high holy days, the first and the last, making tabernacles both the sixth and seventh festival on the biblical calendar. Leviticus chapter 23 verses 33 through 44 tells us about tabernacles, which runs from the 15th to the 22nd day of the seventh month. These biblical feasts come in three clusters, Early spring witnesses Passover and unleavened bread. Late spring features the one-day festival of weeks, later called Pentecost, after penta, which means 50. Then comes the autumn festivals of trumpets, atonement, and the double feast of tabernacles, all in rapid succession. These feasts provide seasonal rhythm to life. God commands that we keep the biblical feasts. It's important to understand that God commanded these festivals. He didn't suggest, recommend, or even consider them optional. Some of the language associated with these feasts is dramatic in emphasizing their importance. For example, consider the imperative of keeping the Day of Atonement. Also, on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a Day of Atonement. It shall be in holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. 
ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. From Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 through 31. Note that people who do not celebrate this day properly are cut off. Please observe that this feast was not to be forgotten or cast aside as the centuries passed, for it is a statue forever throughout your generations. Another passage that emphasizes the eternal nature of the biblical feasts is that which is associated with Passover. From Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. If you missed the ongoing imperative of this feast, it's reiterated later. In verse 24, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Does this mean that Christians in the New Testament, even up to the present day, should obey these statues and keep the biblical feasts? Yes. What right do we have to ignore and discard phrases such as these, forever, throughout your generations, or Observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. The feasts may have predated the Mosaic statutes. We can state with certainty that some of the laws of Moses delivered to the children of Israel at the time of their exodus from Egypt they knew and practiced long before. For example, in Genesis chapter 7 verse 2, it provides instructions to Noah about the numbers of creatures he was to bring on the ark. We see that Noah must have known all about the distinction between clean and unclean animals, long before the Israelites left Egypt. Abraham was plainly knowledgeable regarding the tithe law in Genesis 14 verse 20, because he made it a point to pay tithe to Melchizedek, a priest to the Most High God. Psalm 81 verses 4 through 5 speak of the statue of the new moon with respect to Joseph. It's quite plausible that Joseph knew and did his best to observe the new moon when he lived as a stranger in the land of Egypt. John chapter 8 verse 39 refers to the works of Abraham in a positive light. What works might these have been? Well, according to Genesis 26 verse 5, Abraham kept the charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. If these laws were not the same as the Mosaic laws, what laws would they have been? It's unreasonable to presume the works of Abraham in obeying God's commandments, statutes, and laws were anything but what God later gave to Moses for the children of Israel. It's thus likely that the festivals also predated Moses. Some may argue at this point that none of the most prominent of the biblical feasts, Passover, could not possibly have been celebrated before Exodus from Egypt, since the text of Scripture describes the importance of remembering the great events associated with the children of Israel leaving Egypt on that fateful night. Yet, consider the fact that God specifically instructed the Israelites to prepare for their departure on the 14th of Abib. Why did God pick that night? Why not the 6th or the 22nd or some other evening? Could it not be that the 14th was selected because it was already a special day? 
I'm suggesting that such is at least a possibility. Given that Hebrews knew and practiced other elements of God's law given to Moses in previous times, it is probable that they knew about the festivals also. Jesus kept the biblical feasts. We know that Israelites maintained the schedule of the seven feasts throughout the Old Testament era. God was not always happy with their attitudes, and he let them know on more than one occasion, notably in Isaiah chapter 1, but he never told them to jettison the festival calendar. Most Christians of our time assume that the biblical feasts described in Leviticus 23 were completely abandoned in the New Testament era. That is clearly not the case. If it were God's desire to see the feast dissolved, Jesus would have been the perfect teacher to instruct. But he did not. Indeed, not only did Jesus not tell his followers to cease festival keeping, but he practically did the opposite. He kept the feast himself. Two examples of this attest to Jesus Christ personally endorsing the idea of festival keeping through his own actions. In John chapter 7, we discover that Jesus was present in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles and honored that feast through his own teaching in the temple. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. From John chapter 7, verse 14, and verses 37 through 38. Luke 22 clearly describes how Jesus kept the feast of Passover as well. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go, and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. From Luke 22, verse 7 and 8. Jesus instructed his disciples to prepare so they could keep this feast. It's quite plain that Jesus was a feast keeper. St. Paul kept the biblical feasts. Many will argue that the time to abandon the biblical feasts was after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. They say this is when a new paradigm began and the festivals were nullified. Well, if that were the case, someone forgot to tell Paul. Paul was the premier theologian of the New Testament era, and he kept the feasts. Consider this passage from the book of Acts. When they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus, from Acts chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. Without a doubt, Paul desired to keep in Jerusalem one of the biblical feasts. Another episode from the life of Paul reveals his priorities regarding the biblical festivals. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. From Acts chapter 20, verse 6. Here we perceive that Paul celebrated the feast of unleavened bread with the church at Philippi. No other conclusion is plausible. Then, remember this brief exhortation in the epistle to the church at Corinth. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, 
neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. From 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Paul described the importance of cleansing our lives from sin, using leaven as the typology. In doing so, he encouraged the readers to keep the feast, plainly the feast of unleavened bread. These three examples are sufficient to show us that Paul was indeed a festival keeper. If he did so in the inauguration period of the Christian church, it is apparent that we ought to also. Prophetic Feast Keeping Consider this intriguing statement associated with the future kingdom of God after the return of Jesus Christ, which is found in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This passage tells us that not only will the restored kingdom of Israel celebrate the festival of tabernacles in the future, but other nations will as well. Why will other nations be required to keep this feast given to Israel? Well, that's a good question, but it's not necessary to answer in order to draw out our paramount conclusion, which is this, festival keeping will be a high priority in the future kingdom of God. The last chapters of the book of Ezekiel describe a glorious new temple in a future kingdom age and all the activities associated with this temple within the restored nation of Israel. Like Zechariah, these chapters are enigmatic and raise many questions. But there is one simple point that we can derive that is useful to our purpose. We shall celebrate the biblical feasts in this future era. Consider this verse from Ezekiel 45 verse 21. In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, ye shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. There you have it, a second prophetic passage telling us that the biblical feasts originally described in Leviticus 23 will be celebrated in the future. Do what you can. Let's recap what we have considered so far. First, the feasts of the Bible are described with some detail in the Old Testament with such language that can only lead the reader to conclude that they are permanent structures within God's calendar system. Second, there are clues that suggest the feasts of Scripture may have predated the Mosaic giving of the law, further indicating their permanence. Third, during his life and ministry, Jesus celebrated the feasts. He never suggests that they will one day be abolished. Fourth, the New Testament record of the early Christian churches does not provide any indication that the feasts were ignored. Instead, Paul, as the leading evangelist in early church development, was a feast keeper. Finally, the Old Testament prophets provide at least two passages that plainly state that when the kingdom is restored to Israel after the return of Jesus, we will see the biblical feasts. Altogether, the case supporting our celebrating the biblical feasts is strong. These festivals are part of God's plan for his people. 
Who are we to say that ignoring them is a good idea? Admittedly, we do not know all we might like to regarding the timing of the feasts. Furthermore, we do not know as much as we would like about the proper manner of festival keeping in the Christian era. But neither of these serves as a sufficient excuse for us to completely ignore them and establish our own substitute celebrations. We know enough to do something. We know enough to obey. Obedience is a first step that is taken in faith. After our commitment to do what God commands is exercised in our life, we often enjoy greater understanding about what God's intended purposes were. Let us not allow our lack of faith to prevent our ability to enjoy God's blessings. Let me finish with a particular phrase a good friend of mine often uses when I ask of him a favor. His name is Tom, and unlike me, he is a phenomenal mechanic, albeit a humble man. On occasion, I ask him to look into a mechanical device that is malfunctioning. His response is usually the same. Sure, I'll take a look and do what I can. I can't guarantee that I can fix it, but I'll do what I can. This modest man has taught me much with his homespun approach, because although he does not make any promise that he cannot keep, he also tries his best. In fact, he usually goes on to solve the problem and get things running again. I want to be like Tom. This is a wise way to approach tasks and problems, even when we do not have all the information we would like. Try. Do what we can. I believe God will graciously honor his people who try their best to obey his commands, even if they do not have every single detail worked out. We ought to do what we can. Keeping them in the time and manner that we honestly think is proper, while we continue to search the scripture for further wisdom and await Christ's return. With Paul, we ought to say, Therefore, let us keep the feast. Blessings will result. Even my friend Tom would promise you that.